0: Uh, we're going to resume our study in the Pentecostal handbook. So let's go to the book of Acts chapter 10. We're going to study the conversion of Cornelius, the first uh, Gentile convert. Let's welcome up our apostle and visionary leader, Joe Y. Rostek. Let's give it up for the uh, teacher, the prophet, the evangelist, brother Jared Walker. Come on, let's give it up for Jared. Amen. I'm going to see today if I can go through two chapters, Acts ten and eleven, because uh, Acts 11 really concludes what happens in Acts 10. So let's give it our best shot. Today in the Pentecostal handbook, we're going to learn that God had a plan for the Gentiles to receive salvation and empowerment along with the Jews. And that goes along with what Jesus was saying in Acts chapter one, verse eight, "You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth." Acts chapter 10, verse 1 at Caesarea, a little bit north of Jerusalem, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. So he's an Italian. He's like me. This is a guy from the nation of Rome. He's a Gentile. He's in charge of things. He's a leader. And uh, we're going to learn about a separate category now, which we haven't really learned much about, especially even since my uh, uh, series on Ephesians. Jew, Gentile, but among the Gentiles, there was a group of people known as God-fearers. Everybody say God-fearers. And so they were still Gentiles, but they were very much identified with the people of Israel. They were in solidarity with them somewhat of a convert, as you could say, to Judaism. Um, Sometimes they didn't go the full way. They would stay in the God-fearing position, which would be a position of itself. Other times they would convert to Judaism and do all they could to be a part of the Jewish nation. Um, So there's a little bit of historical data. There's not a lot to know here, but uh, our best guess is that he was not fully converted to Judaism so he's a God-fear, he respects Judaism, and he might have converted over time. Maybe his father was a convert. You don't know, you know? So there's kind of these three categories, Jew, Gentile, and God-fear, and uh, Gentiles could become adopted into the nation and become a convert. So uh, you do hear about converts uh, to Judaism. Can you look up the convert to Judaism? Where do we find that? I know we've read that, haven't we already, where it says he was a convert to Judaism? Um, Yeah, look that up, just in the book of Acts right now, convert, because uh, there is a difference between a convert and a God-fearer, but God-fearers oftentimes would become converts. Yes, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it says that Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So he actually converted to Jews. So he would be considered a Jew even though he wasn't born one. He would be considered one, and a God-fearer would be someone kind of in between becoming a convert, and just living as a total pagan. Does everybody get that? Okay. And then God-fearers could become converts. But this term, God-fear, generally refers to people who had not become a convert. Okay. So at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what is known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So now he's praying the three prayers of the Jewish people. One day about three in the afternoon he had a vision distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear and said, what is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts for the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. And so the idea is here is that these God-fearers pleased God. That's why I say there's kind of a a line here between whether or not they were an actual convert. Maybe they didn't do everything the Jewish people of that day wanted them to do, but they were genuinely saved under the old covenant because they were doing the things that God wanted them to do. And what you're going to learn is there's a distinction between that, and even uh, um, it's going to come up today, between what the Jewish people had in their Talmud, which is their traditional law of the, the elders, and what the law actually said. And if you remember Jesus talking about this, He said, your traditions nullify the word of God. Does everybody remember that? Like he had a problem with those traditions. Jesus didn't have a problem with the law. The law was not Jesus's problem. Jesus came to fulfill the law and bring it to its completion and to show what it was there. But what he had a real problem with was people adding on to the law, onto the law. So they would add these heavy burdens on top of the law and weigh people down. And this would make people, as he said, twice the sons of the devil as they were. So said. That you guys go all over the world looking for a convert, and when you finally get one you make them twice the son of the devil as you so um, this this position of God fear does not mean that he was not right with God because he wasn't a convert you know for looking at it like that. Uh, he very well was right with God that's that's that line that I was telling you is a little bit blurred. And so uh, the convert language of the New Testament might have mean they literally came under the, uh, like, like Nicholas here, who as we just read, one of the first deacons, actually came under all of these traditions and laws. And, and here uh, the centurion didn't. It seems like he's doing the basics, what we would call mere Judaism. If you've ever heard that term for Christianity Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about mere Christianity. It seems like the God-fearer was doing mere Judaism. And the Bible says that he was blessed by God. He was blessed. His prayers and gifts come before God as an acceptable offering, as a memorial offering. Let's keep going. Now the angel says to him, now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel had spoke to him at gone. Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent, him, sent them to Joppa. Verse 9, now about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on this roof to pray. So basically they prayed like three times a day. They prayed in the morning after uh, the, the 12 o'clock and then 3 o'clock prayer. And, and just find out what their morning prayer was. Was it 9 o'clock, 9, 12, 3? I think that may be it, but just get a, an actual time. So about noon, uh, Peter goes up to pray, and uh, excuse me, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter goes up to pray on the roof. Verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now notice, uh, Cornelius had a vision, he had a trance. Is there a difference here? I personally don't. Some of the prophetic people will start talking about these differences. Um, I don't really see much of a difference. A vision is something you can see with your eyes open. And you're still aware of the environment, and they may say a trance is more like you're still up, so it's not a dream. You're not out, and it's not a vision where you're totally aware. It's maybe somewhere between um, sleep and awake. So it's like kind of like, oh man, I'm in a trance, you know. Um, But I don't think the Bible's meant to really like differentiate these things, you know, like in the sense of like. You know, like we're going to have trances and visions and, uh, you know, which one's better than the other. I think for what Luke is recording here... A, a trance and a vision was the way that God spoke to people while they were awake. I think that's just the clear thing. And then you look at the the Book of Acts when Paul, I mean, when Peter's preaching on the Day of Pentecost, it just summarizes it: dreams and visions. But you know, if you want to take it technically and say, well, uh, the trance is a different experience than the vision, that's fine. But it uh, it doesn't really, to me, other than the awareness of the person of the environment, as I've You know, study this. That's the only difference. The vision, you're still aware of a surrounding area. So it's almost like you see a daydream playing out in front of you. And the trance is, it's like you're in a dream state, but you're still up and you're moving. You come in and you come out. Okay. So there's a difference. To me, it's not a big difference. That's my point. So if you just notice that, there's a little difference there. That's okay. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. Oh, and by the way, even Paul was like this. Remember when he talks about, or we talked about last week, he said, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but this person went up to the third heaven. You see what I'm saying? These distinctions aren't necessary to receiving a word from God. You know, so did I have a trance or a vision? Did God speak to you is what I'm going to ask you. You get what I'm talking about? Oh, man, I've had visions, but I haven't had a trance. Oh, man, I've had a trance, and they're so awesome. Oh, I wish I had a trance. You get, you get how that kind of breeds that kind of like uh, what I call hyper-spirituality, but it's not really hyper because you can never go bad into something good. Like, you know, um, it's, it's what I call superstitious, hyper-superstition. So, you know, I can have as much as God as I want and never be hyper-spiritual. Like God, um, Jesus was fully God and wasn't hyper-spiritual. So sometimes people say things like that. I don't like even giving it that term. I'll just call it what it is. That's superstitious. You're you're chasing after something the Bible never said to do, just to be open to it. If God uh, gives you a trance and you would say, yeah, it seems like I was up but I was in a dream state. Okay, cool, you had a trance. Another time you may say, I was totally up, I could see things around the room, and I saw a picture open up in front of me. Okay, cool, it's more like a vision. But let's not make a big deal out of it. Just like Paul said, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body, but I was in heaven. I saw what heaven looked like, okay? So let's not get caught up in those things. So he sees heaven opened up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all four-footed animals, All excuse me, all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Okay, what are the times of prayer? 9, 12, 3? It depends on the sun. Okay, so it depends on the sun, but it could be around what time? In the morning. What's the morning prayer is what I'm trying to get to? Okay, I mean, that could be 9. Just put 9, 12, 3 p.m. Uh, and see if those are Jewish prayer. put Jewish prayer times three. I mean Jewish prayer times uh, 9, 12, 3 pm. and see if it comes up like that's kind of a, a set schedule. All right, so you know Jewish people had a dietary law now, this vision is going to show them, uh, show Peter rather, why God had given them the dietary law. The dietary law was an illustration of Jew and Gentile. That's all it was. It was never meant to say you can't eat all the animals, you can't eat lechon, because Noah could eat all the animals. After Noah got off the ark, God said to him, You can eat everything, everything is for you. But then when God gave the law to Moses, he said, Now these are the things you can eat and you can't eat. And what was the purpose of that? This is now the fulfillment. This is the fulfillment. It was to teach you Jew and Gentile. It was to teach you clean and unclean. That's what all those clean and unclean laws, you can can summarize them as, Jew and Gentile. And so uh, I like when Dr. Michael Brown says, you never see God judging the Gentiles because they eat pork or because they touch a dead body or something. Those were never laws that he enforced on them. It's the moral laws um, that he enforced upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the moral laws that he enforced upon Assyria and Persian, all these places and so these unique these unique laws to the Jewish people had purposes and reasons and in the New Testament we start to see them fulfilled in Christ and so here is this fulfillment and Peter's freaking out because the voice is telling him to eat lechon an unclean animal or something and a snake and he's like I don't do this verse 15 the voice, the voice spoke to him a second time do not call anything impure that God has made clean now let's go to the words of Jesus Mark 7 19 Obviously, uh, Peter would have been around for this uh, teaching of Jesus, but it's great that that Luke is making reference to this in the vision. So, like, Luke is not thrown off by this, in other words. Jesus had said it's not what goes um, into the heart, excuse me, for it doesn't go into the heart but into the stomach and then out the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Let me just go up a verse here. Excuse me, verse 28. Are you so dull? Look how Jesus rebukes his disciples right there. Uh, Verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull? He asked and y'all don't get mad at me if I ever get a little tough with you guys every now and then. Okay, I'm just being like Jesus. But make sure you do it in love. That's all I got to say because I know some of y'all want to get sassy now with some of your 101ers and 201ers and be handing down rebukes. Just make sure if you ask them if they're dull that you do it in love. Okay? He asked, do you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach, and then out from the body. How many knew that scripture? Now watch what Mark adds here. It's in um, uh, brackets with for us, but uh, it's not that in the original. So it's just Mark's commentary in the actual passage. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So Jesus declared all foods clean back then. So he's fulfilling laws as he's on the earth. Okay, and uh, this is now not taking hold of Peter. And as a matter of fact, even after this, Peter keeps doing things he's not supposed to be doing. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's like you could see they were dull and sometimes we are dull to not get what God is saying. Verse 16, this happened three times. Peter needed this to happen three times. A sheep come down with all the animals and reptiles. God says eat. He says don't three times. Jesus had to ask him three times if he loved him. I don't know if uh, Peter was just hard, uh, you know, stubborn, but whatever it was, he gets this lesson three times. Come on, somebody say, help me, Jesus. Amen. So now, verse 17, he doesn't even quite get it yet. He doesn't even quite get it yet, right? Now it's going to come about even another time. You can almost consider it the fourth time where it all comes about when he's actually in Cornelius' house. Because remember, Cornelius has the vision to go get Peter. Verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, now you notice the meaning of the what? So trance and vision were interchangeable there. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the same thing with elder and bishop. Elder and bishop are interchangeable. Presbyteros and episkopos. They're interchangeable. You can see that in Titus. And so there isn't a separate position called bishop and then a separate position called elder. Elder and bishop, interchangeable, talking about the same title. So whether it's elder and deacons, bishops and deacons, it's the same thing. Word interchangeable. Same thing with vision or trance. Like I said, maybe a slight difference, but considered a vision. Okay, and I, oh, I guess the reason why I just said this because I'm always giving you what I'm getting, and I just listened to a guy talk about these differences for a long time, and I'm like, dude, you are just making a big deal out of nothing, you know? But they want to seem so prophetic, you know? And 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 I don't mind when you guys listen to me, and you'll and you'll be like, mm, that's so good. But it's this group of people that get around that teaching—that's all they ever do. It's like they're just waiting for that. Do you know what I'm saying? They're like, oh man, so good. Hmm. Oh, that's good, you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, and it's almost like the speaker like lives for those little groans and like "Mm, oh, so good. Yeah, that's good. And I just feel I don't want to name names, but you know the kind of groups of people I'm talking about that get around those teachings. And I'm just like, dude, the guy's just making stuff up. I mean, most of what he is saying is not even in the context of the scripture. Just like what I said, like this whole 15-minute discussion, I'm listening to a guy talk about the difference between a dream and a vision, no scripture, other than him just referencing this. He doesn't even make reference to the passage where it says the vision is actually considered a trance. Like it's interchangeable. I mean, it's like you just lost everything you were just saying right there when you just look at the context. So while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent from Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, uh, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Now, if you notice, these are two separate times, this time and then the time with um, Ananias going to Peter to pray for him to have the scales off his eyes, we see a direct word of knowledge relating to a position of, you know, where people are at, in the house, this type of thing. See, that's the real deal to me. That's not guessing, you know, like, you know, you have a big crowd of people, somebody looking up on Facebook, people who have checked in, and now they're like, is there a marge here? A marge? Marge. Is there a marge? Okay, marge. All right, come on now. Marge. Do you do you have a, a blue car? Okay, blue car. You know you know what I'm saying, dude. Like that is just like that is so hokey pokey. This is not what's. These are people literally going. God told me to do X, Y, and Z, and the person has a preparation. Both Paul and uh, Peter had a preparation for this going to happen. Someone is going to come to you because I've told them to come. Do you see the difference here? So it's real, like like I said, hokey pokey to do. it one-sided based on stuff you can find now on Facebook so easy and then shuck and jive. I'm just not into that. If that is God then let me be cautious, okay? Let me be cautious, and I would rather miss that by being cautious than getting into the hokey-pokiness that I've seen exposed so many times of these guys being fake and charlatans when they do that nonsense. And sadly, charismatic churches have had a history of that, and we just need to get away from that and just get back to the solid review of the Bible. That's why even today when I had a dream about Jared now I was speaking to him in the back, I want, him, I want him to pray about it and confirm it whether or not it's of the Lord because I don't want it to be hokey pokey. I want it to be, is this a God thing? And if it's not, then it's just, I had a dream about my brother last night. You know, that's it. I mean, let's just leave it at that. Let's not try to make things that are not, you know, prophetic in that, Prophetic. And that's why I want to be careful with the prophetic gifts here. And I want them to be uh, stewarded, as we would say, apostolically, because we don't see that nonsense in the early church. Can I get an amen? Amen. So they, they come and find Peter while Peter's wondering what he just saw, basically. Verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, what is it called now? The vision, okay? He's thinking about the vision. The Spirit said to him, um, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do you see? It's like these kind of knowledge words are really playing in together with these, with these kind of facts is what I'm saying, names and locations. We're going to see Agabus gets a word about a famine coming up in the next chapter, and that's, and that's foretelling. That's a, you know, that's a looking towards the future. That, that's something that, yes, you don't need to have like 20 people confirm on that because God can speak to a prophet and we got we to see them being tested. But like I said, it's not hokey pokey. It's not like, like you know, God told me to come here and find you and do this and this. Okay, well then what's the point of this? What's the point? Because that's the same exact hokey pokiness that these readers do from people who, who talk to the dead. That's the same exact thing. You know what I'm saying? They talk to the dead. Your dead relative wants you to know that that they, that they gave you that you keep on your your bed night your nightstand that they stand there every night and look at you you know it's like come on dude a little tear coming down how would you know i have a nightstand and all this this you know and it's just they have their ways of finding this information out and some of them they just kind of dig for it you know did anybody here lose a loved one uh, last month anybody lose a loved one last month oh, okay uh father or mother parent parent oh, they'll be parent is a parent which one father or mother okay and then they'll just keep going off of that and you'll see prophetic people do the same thing you know what i'm talking about right okay all right so three men are looking for you okay while peter was thinking about the vision the spirit said to him Simon three men are looking for you so get up and go downstairs do not hesitate to go with them for i have sent them now let me just pause and say this this is the pentecostal handbook though So I I can't just be all the negative there. We actually believe this still happens today. This describes only one church on the planet today. Only one church. This doesn't describe the Roman Catholic church. They don't have people having dreams and visions and, and trances and having words of wisdom and knowledge and the boom shakalaka which you're about ready to see. The Baptists don't have it. This is Pentecostals. Are you getting that? So let me just reinforce that in case I went a little bit too off into correcting our movement. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bath, bath water. I'm not throwing out the move of the Holy Spirit because there's charlatans or in another realm there's wildfire. There's just immaturity. Some of it's purposely wrong in other places it's just immature. They don't know any better. Verse 21, Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man. See, now this right here gives me the indication that even though he wasn't a convert to Judaism, if he would have died, he would have went to heaven. Why? Because he's a righteous man. Can you be righteous apart from being in a good standing with God? No. So he's in the old covenantal blessing now, this brings up a whole list of discussions, and the book that I encourage everybody to get, if you have, a, if you have a, uh, a heart to learn about unreached people groups and how God moved in their traditions from the time of Noah till the time of mission, the missionaries going to them, get Eternity in Their Heart by Richard, Richard Cyril, and I'll spell out his name here, Eternity In their hearts, and this comes from Ecclesiastes, where it talks about eternity is in your, is in everybody's heart, and they're looking for God. Excuse me, not Richard Cyril. This is Don Richardson. Don Richardson, eternity in their heart, eternity in their heart, by Don Richardson, and it's a great book that talks about God-fearing people in all kinds of cultures. In the Aztecs and Mayans, in the Central and South America, there were different missionaries that would go to these tribes, to these people groups, and they would see things that were almost identical to the Jewish temple. They would meet people that had visions and dreams about people coming to them, teaching them the way of the Son of God. Some of them even had dreams of it being a white person, and they had never seen a white person before, coming with a book of the revelation of God, the creator of the universe. I'm telling you, this is a beautiful, beautiful book that missionaries missionaries shared their stories and this man put it together because it tells the global story of the gospel and how there were many people that were seeking after the one true God. They were rejecting their traditions. They were themselves getting dreams and visions and seeking after that God. And, uh, you know, missionaries came to them. And so some of the questions are, well, did the only ones who get saved are the ones that the missionaries came to? So you see here, like uh, only Cornelius was saved and not his father, because before here it said that uh, his father was also this kind of a person. Let me go back up here. When it tells you about Caesarea, uh, his family uh, were devoted and uh, he prayed three times in the afternoon. No, it doesn't mention his father here, does it? It just says that his family was devout and God-fearing. Okay, so just take, for example, uh, if his father was this person that was the one who taught him, you know, so his father dies before getting the gospel, does he get saved based on the old covenantal promise, or does, is he lost? You know, let's say he even died while Jesus was alive. Is he lost? I mean, uh, these are questions that we have to ask ourselves. And then it gets even more complex when you go into the mission field. Uh, the idea is, uh, you know, these, this guy who had the vision. Let's just take one of the stories that I can remember here. I don't remember what people group it was in, though. But there's a story that a guy actually says. I'm gonna, there's going to be a visitor that comes to us from a faraway land. They're going to be a white person carrying a book that tells us the revelation of the Son of God. Okay, so now the missionary comes, and these people say, we have in our tradition this story from this guy 50 years ago. He died. I mean, he told us this would be happening. We were waiting for this to happen. Okay, so the question is now, if they bring you, if that missionary is brought to that gravesite of that man, and they say, what happened to that man, what does the missionary say? Does the missionary say that man's in hell because he hasn't heard what I just said? Does he get saved on general revelation? Is he considered a God-fear and righteous as these men were? But at least these people had certain understandings of the Jewish people because they were around them. You see, there's a complex answer there. Now, here's the thing. We, We should, and I like what John Calvin said, we should be silent where the Bible is silent. Okay, And then another man said, it's not the parts that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. <laughs> okay, Because there's a lot that we do understand. That's why I always put it right back on the person who's saying that to me like an accusation. Well, what about the tribes in Africa who have never heard the gospel? The first thing I say back to them, that's not you. You're hearing it now. I can tell you what happens to you. Okay, I can tell you right now what happens to you. This is the part I do understand. This other part, we go to Romans chapter 1 is there the possibility of a conscious of a judge of their conscience where they're saved based on the revelation that they have that's a question we don't know b are they then that's option a option b is are they cursed by their forefathers which you remember in deuteronomy i'll curse three and four generations and so once again how do how did these people get in the mess they were in it's not an accident it all goes back to the tower of babel and when they came under a curse and so now they're suffering that curse and all of this lineage is going to hell or is there like a third option where whoever was generally seeking the knowledge of the truth, the gospel or the Jewish faith came to them, and so there was none lost that actually truly sought it because truth came to them. Now, that would be difficult for, like, far-off regions of India. So that would just mean, like... For like 3,000 years, no one really was supposed to be saved in India until a missionary finally went or something, okay? So where, where do I fall in? I'm definitely not the one sending them all to hell. I'm definitely not that guy. I'm somewhere between like the A and the C where God is judging according to the conscience, the light that they have, and or he knows who people are that will get saved and he places them at times where they can get saved. Does everybody get that? So God in his foreknowledge knows Bubba will never get saved. So it doesn't matter if Bubba ever gets the gospel or not because Bubba's going to reject it a 100 times over. But uh, Mike will get saved, so Mike's going to live in a time like Cornelius where somebody can come and preach to him, and that's where he'll accept the gospel. So no one's going to hell going, uh, well, I would have chosen otherwise. He's like, no, you wouldn't. I can show you how you didn't even do the things right here. Like I was speaking to you, giving you little revelation. You didn't even want it there. Uh, But that kind of rocks our theology a little bit because we always like to say God gives everybody the same kind of chance. But that is not true. We don't get all the same kind of chance, okay? So there are different chances to be saved. So obviously Judas had a much greater chance to be saved than we did. He's walking and talking with Jesus. You don't get that same chance. But... Judas backslid, hung himself, so it didn't really help him in the long run. But we just want to make sure that we don't say everybody gets the same chance. What I say is everybody gets the same choice, the choice. That's why I settle somewhere between God judges them by their conscience, the light that they have, or only those who are alive receiving missionaries uh, that can be receiving of missionaries are the ones who would be saved. Does everybody get that? You can ask me more questions about that later. So while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, there are three men looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? We have come from Cornelius, a centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them. Some of the believers from Joppa went along. So now they're going down to Cornelius' house. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius expecting them, and had called them to called, Excuse me. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, "I am only a man myself. How many know this can't be the Roman Catholic handbook because people fall down to the Pope all the time, and they haven't got a problem with that." Right, People falling down to Mary and statues and bishops and cardinals and kissing rings. They haven't got a problem with that. So this is not the Roman Catholic handbook. Can I get an amen? Not the Roman Catholic handbook. They can't apply this verse by verse. We can, though. And somebody may say the Baptist, the Presbyterian may say, man, we're totally with you on that. But let's just see if this looks like a Presbyterian service here in just a moment. Let's see if this looks like a Baptist service. I love my Baptist brothers, but they need to become Bapticostal. Amen? All right, it says, verse 27, while talking, with, while talking with them, Peter went inside, found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it's uh, against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. Now here, here we got to understand, show me that law in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the uh, 613 laws, that it's illegal according to God's word to eat with the Gentile. It's not. Where is this law found? In the Talmud, the traditions of men. You see what I'm saying, what I was talking about before? These Jews put on so many laws that they hindered people even coming to Judaism. That's why I don't have an issue with this man being right with God, even though he wasn't quote-unquote a convert, because those converts that they were making were becoming, by Jesus' definition, twice the sons of the devil that the Jewish people were. So it seems like this God-fearing position might have been a workaround for the Holy Spirit to actually do something in people's lives so they wouldn't have to... Carry all these redonkulous burdens. Because how in the world can I preach the gospel to you if I can't eat with you? Right? I mean, that's foolish. And that's why they got upset with Jesus. He's eating with sinners. He's doing these things. But there was nothing against the law of Jews, uh, the, the law of Moses to do that. So this law is a lowercase law. It is not a law from God. It is a law of man, a tradition of man that what? Nullifies the word of God, as Jesus had said and just find that verse for me, please. I forgot to add it to the notes. And I, I, on my way here, I listened to this about six times. And I said, I want to show you guys: nullify your traditions, nullify the word of God. Against our, you are well aware that's against our law, and it should be the law of their traditions, right? The law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Amen. Now he gets it, right? Now he gets it. Praise God! It's all come together for him. So when I was so when I was sent for I came without raising any objection may I ask why you sent for me. It's always good to ask questions to expose people's hearts. He wanted to see, now, what are you uh, wanting me to be here for? And Jesus did that all the time. Who do you say that I am? It's a a traditional method in the Greek philosophy, the Socratic method, to ask questions to help learn the the thoughts of people. And it's still good to this day. One of the greatest ways, and I say this with the prophetic here, for me to discern the kind of spirit someone has is out of the abundance of their words while I ask them questions. And then I can really confirm what I sensed in my heart. So... You know, you watch, you watch somebody come into a Bible study or life group or to the church service and you're sensing, man, this person may have some issues, whatever, and you could talk to them. Is everything okay? What's going on? Do you know that Jesus loves you? <laughs> you know, you can start doing that and you're asking those provoking questions. And at the same time, while you're discipling, asking those questions to confirm what you're sensing in the spirit, because the spirit's already speaking to you about the kind of spirit they have, especially if you have that gift, discerning of spirit. Uh, and with the questions and listening to their words, you can get an answer. And once again, that's not Spooky because you're doing exactly what the Word of God said. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're asking the questions. That's what Peter's doing. He's wanting to discern their spirit. Are you about this thing? Are you really who the angel said you are? Are you, are, you know, and if not, I know there's somebody here that's right with God, but I want to know who here is the one that's right with God. Who is the one hungry here? Who's the one that really wants what I have to say and what God is doing? And, you know, wants to experience that. That's what I think he was saying. Nullify. Where's it at? Matthew 15, 6, you nullify the word of God with your tradition. Cornelius answered, three days ago in my house I was praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. So he's a righteous man. This is why I believe he would have gone to heaven. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Now this is now going to be him preaching the gospel to him. Now Peter begins to say, "I know you know these things." So he might have heard it by word of mouth, but he might not have heard it in its fullness. So he's going to start telling them the full story of the gospel. Now he starts off in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now do you understand why I come up with the C option? A option is uh, they get... uh, or excuse me, I come up with the A option. A option is God speaks to the cultures and whatever light they have in their conscience, he accepts or rejects them. Option B is they all go to hell. Option C is only those who get missionaries go to heaven. I lean more towards option A, and I do like C as well, but I lean more towards option A because of this sentence right here, because he accepts everyone from uh, every nation, the ones who fear him and does what is right. And this is reiterated by Paul in Acts 17, 28, when he is on, uh, in Mars Hill, he says, uh, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made in the human design and in skill. In past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, and even just a few verses before this, uh, God did this, um, you know, let's go up to verse 26, talking about the spreading out of the nations, referring what I believe to the Tower of Babel. For one nation, he made all the nations, for one man rather, talking about Adam, he made all the nations, so that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So you were meant to be here at this time in this land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. So he wasn't far from the Aztec. He wasn't far from the Roman. For in him we live and move and breathe and have our being. We are his offspring. Okay. So it seems like as we read a book like Eternity in their hearts, God was able to speak to people, get rid of your idols, worship one God that's not made of you know stone or gold or whatever and then follow a moral code. Those people, I believe, were accepted by God. That's what I personally believe. Then after the time of Jesus, the missionaries are being sent out and then we see a lot of people like Cornelius that God unites so it does seem to be like the truth is coming to those who are waiting for it, but that doesn't mean in my mind that everybody Prior to that, the ones who had maybe the prophecies or the traditions weren't out righteous men or couldn't be accepted by God. So Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears Him and does what is right. So, the does what is right would have to be based upon what they know in their conscience or what God gives them in a special dream and a vision. That's my belief there because, you know, like I said, how can you know the law and its fullness without? Uh, having a Jewish person, and then that would damn a whole lot of people. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm doing this to to guard the integrity of our great God who is both holy and loving. God is love. You know, now, now watch this. He says, you know the message of God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. So it sounds like he's not starting from scratch with this person. So it's been a, you know, a few months since uh, the resurrection. I don't even know if we're getting to a year now. We possibly could. We get lost on timelines. So actually years, get out the timeline for me, please. That's one thing that I, I wish we could do. Just get a timeline of the book of Acts and give me, give me a guess of where we are right here. So if it is years, that's, that's cool. Yeah, you are right because then um, Saul's going to come up in just a minute in the next chapter. And then, um, well, well, chapter, um, yeah, chapter 12, Paul, and it's going to be, I think, after his three-year time in Damascus. So you're right, we're about two or three years right here. Now notice how he believes that sickness comes from the devil, not literally always being demon-possessed, but Satan, because of the curse, brought sickness upon the earth, and Jesus was setting people free. That goes with the Isaiah chapter 61, which was fulfilled in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to, you know, preach the gospel to the poor and these and these things, you know, recovery of sight to the blind. We are witnesses of everything he did in the in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead. Dead on the third day, and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's really cool because it explains why Jesus didn't go around having a carnival saying, Here I am raised from the dead, everybody touched my body. This was part of the plan for the gospel to come by faith and not by quote unquote signs and wonders to convince pagans or the wicked generation to believe. He purposely hid himself from them and only spent time with his disciples. Do we got a, a roundabout date? Yeah, uh, 37 AD. So it's about four years. Okay, so about four years. Well, this, this, this assumes that Jesus all that 30, I guess the death and resurrection is 30. This oh, really? So it's saying it could possibly be seven years. Well, okay. I wonder what they would think if it was um, 33 AD. Because that's what I think. 30 is when he started this ministry. 33 is when he was dead, buried, resurrected, right? Yeah. Yeah. So pushing it back a little bit further into the BC now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's cool. That's why for me maps, geography, and timelines are always helpful to go back and check because I forget those things all the time. That's not necessarily my strong point. So you can go back and look at Any good commentary will do that for you. Maybe in the next couple weeks I'll show you like an actual timeline of the book of Acts because especially when we get to Paul and he's taking his journeys, I want you to think about what books are being written at that time as well and where he's traveling because you know that's where we get a lot of the names of our books from, etc. Okay, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. That's obviously the Great Commission, both in Mark uh, Matthew 28 and Mark 16. All the prophets testify, testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now here's where we have to see. Is this a Presbyterian service? Is this a Baptist service? Or is this a Pentecostal service? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the what? The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even Gentiles. Notice, not regeneration. They must have been saved while hearing the message if they had never heard about Jesus or possibly they were already saved, just like the other guys in Acts 19, but they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how it could be both? But there is no way you can equate now the gift of the Holy Spirit to meaning they're being saved, because we've showed you over and over and over again, that's not what the gift of the Holy Spirit means, starting with the first time you hear about it in the book of Acts even in luke when he talks about and because he talks about uh, here in just a moment a reference to jesus in luke about being baptized with water as opposed to uh, what jesus is going to do with fire so it is obviously the second work of the holy spirit it's the endowment of power 4 verse 46 for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising god then peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water they have received the holy spirit just as we as we have so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Does everybody see what just happened here? It's, it's obvious. This is a Pentecostal service. Now remember back in times past, there were some that are saved, water baptized, and apostles come, like with Philip, then they receive the Holy Spirit, right? Same thing with Paul. He gets saved, um, No, excuse me, let me get the timelines right here, okay? So Philip, you have salvation, water baptism, then baptism of the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. Then you have Paul, saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, then water baptized, right? And then now we see the same thing here, that same order. They're saved, speaking in tongues before they get baptized, okay? Okay. So, saved, sanctified happens at the same time. Saved and sanctified. Saved means to be uh, you know, forgiven of your sins. And sanctified means to be cleansed of your sins and made a righteous, holy person. And let me just uh, show that to you uh, quickly here. What is it? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 610 thank you so you can see how it always happens together and this is what some of you were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of our lord jesus christ and by the by the spirit of our god and justified is always equated with salvation you cannot be saved without being justified because that is the forgiveness that is the pardoning of your sins and now washed and sanctified have to do with that interchange the changing of your being on the inside and uh, that is an ontological uh, a- a event. That is ontological. So you can have positionally things happen. And this is where some people get confused and they say, well, positionally I'm holy. And what they mean by that is set apart. So they'll, they'll use like an example of a priest. Like a priest was a part of a tribe that was set apart from all the other tribes. So positionally I'm holy, but ontologically, ontology, having to do with your being, I'm still just a sinner. But that is not true. The priest was not only set apart and made holy, but in his being, he was also made holy and cleansed by blood so that he can go into the temple. Now, I don't believe he was regenerated on the inside, spiritually made holy in that way, but he was his body was actually cleansed with blood, and then he would wash in the, the water, do you get this, to go and do the thing. So he had to literally be cleansed to also go in and do the thing. So I am not just set apart for God in that sense of holiness. I am also changed, not on the outside now, because remember, those were the examples. I am now literally washed on the inside. Literally sanctified in my spirit from my sinful flesh. I am not intertwined with the sinful nature anymore. I am now intertwined in Christ. I am seated in heavenly realms. Does everybody see that? So there is a changing of nature, not just a changing of position. How many believe when the Bible says you're made a new creation, that's a changing of nature? That's not just positionally. I was adopted and just so they they would think of it like you're a dirty filthy sinner in the orphanage now you're adopted and you're a dirty filthy sinner living in the father's house and they would say that's what you mean that that's what it means by holy you're set apart from that orphanage now to the father's house no 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 no. not only am i taken out of that orphanage of the devil not only am i doing have have that happening but what else is happening i'm being literally washed i'm being literally sanctified and jesus talked about that same thing with the example of the foot washing and he washed their feet and he said if you don't let me wash your feet you you have no part of me. And then Peter said, wash my whole body. And he said, no, you're already clean. You are clean. I only need to wash your feet. And what was that talking about? That clean people in the perfection of Christ can sin by walking through the world, but they can be cleansed through the repentance. They can they can have a reapplication over their sins, over their mistakes of the blood of Jesus, amen? So I don't believe, as some teach, like Joseph Prince, that never can I sin and defile my nature as a Christian. No, we can defile ourselves as Christians. The Bible actually uses that word about us doing it, defiling ourselves. Do not be defiled. Uh, do not let the root of bitterness grow up in you that can defile many. Bitterness defiles many, amen? So can I hear an Amen. Hebrew says the root of bitterness defiles many. So you as a Christian can be defiled. So what do you do if you step and do it? You clean your feet. You don't take a whole shower. And so some people say, well, then that means I'm sanctified, being sanctified. I was sanctified in the past. I'm being sanctified now. And one day I'll be sanctified in the future. That can be true if you know that your default position is perfection, holiness, blamelessness, righteousness in Christ. Do you see the difference? I can believe in a three-part stage of sanctification as long as we always know the water bottle is clean. I'm not 90% dirty, 10% clean, and then it goes on and on and on, and then one day I'm 100%. No, I started 100%, but if I sin, and you want to look at it that, and there's a part of my heart or a thought or a deed that I've done against God that's unclean, the repentance restores me to the 100%. There's a restoration, a renewal, bringing back to the new, a renewal. Do you get that? A bringing back, a restoring to the new. And so I don't want you to ever think about you minusing things from your bad works. But if that's the way they want to look at it, I can go as far as that. Though personally, I just keep Jesus' examples. And you can look at the washing of the feet or you can just look at the pruning. There's something that doesn't belong in your heart. You're still a vine. You're still righteous. You're still holy. And God says, let me deal with it. Let me wash it. And let me have you continue in good standing and in, in right, uh, right thinking and right behavior. Can I hear an Amen. Amen. So uh, that's how we're supposed to think about sanctification. So anyways, uh, back to this part here uh, with Cornelius. They're saved, they're sanctified, and then they're filled with the Holy Ghost and fire. They start speaking in tongues. That's how we know that they've received the gift. Where is the language of the gift first used? It's first used in the context of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, when Paul... Uh, when um, when Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Father. Look at it, what it says here. "What well, you will receive power, and he says to them, I'll write up here. Okay. Do not leave Jerusalem, chapter 1 of Acts, verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the what? The gift my Father promised, which you have heard from me speak about, for John baptized with what? With water. But in a few days you'll be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. Is that for salvation or is that for empowerment? Which one is it? Is the baptism of the Holy Spirit for salvation or is it for empowerment? Empowerment. Amen. Now Paul, I got them all mixed up in my head right now. Peter is going to tell the story. Oh, man, I want to try to go through this whole thing so we can end it. Let's let's go through it right now. I think I can end the story because it kind of, it ends with, with the apostles and the believers throughout Judea hearing about this. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 11. They hear that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went to the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now watch this right here. Do you see how this works? The Jews used to persecute them. Now Jews have become Christians and they're persecuting the Gentiles or people preaching the Gentiles. This becomes a big problem in the Christian church, this spirit of religion. It followed them into the church. We call this the Judaizers. The Judaizers. They now want Gentiles to convert. to Judaism to become Christians. So they're now saying they, they can't be saved unless they do all 613 laws of the Jewish people like we do and all of our traditions of the Talmud. Then they can be true Christians. Do you see? Because the thing they bring up is the very written law that they made up that you shouldn't have eaten with them. So that's the problem, and that's going to be what causes the Council of Jerusalem, the first real council to settle a dispute. Do they need to do, first of all, do they need to do the Old Testament law? No. And then do they need to keep our traditions? No. So what's the basic things they need to do other than the gospel? A few little things that will make them get along with the Jewish people. Don't drink blood, don't have adultery, you know, don't eat blood, don't have adultery, etc. Okay? Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance. I saw a vision. So I was in a trance, and I saw a vision. Do you see how It works now. You're in a dreamlike state while you're awake and you see a vision. There you go. I saw something like a sheik being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to where I was. I looked and saw four footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I've heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Why is it read here in this translation? because we believe it's Jesus, amen. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and it was pulled up to the angels in heaven. Right then three men who had been sent from Caesarea stopped at my house where I was staying. The Spirit told me, To have no hesitation about going with them, these six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told me he had seen an angel, he had seen an angel appear to him in the house and say send to Joppa for Simon who is called Peter, he'll bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. So they were going to get a message to be saved. So this, at this point somebody may make, make the argument say before they weren't saved, before they were not saved. And this is where I would just make my last point and say okay, I'll grant to you they were not saved yet by definition in the new covenant but if they would have died were they saved by definition in the old covenant and that's probably going to be a positive for me I'm going to say yes and they might have only vaguely heard about Jesus but not know much more about him so they literally had to be saved and regenerated but I think in Acts chapter uh, 19 the disciples of John I think they actually were regenerated but they just didn't know all the teachings of Jesus and that's why Paul uh, doesn't necessarily say that they weren't saved because he calls them brothers, okay? Uh, and so some people say that, well, that's a fellow uh, Israelite. But I just, I really think that they were already saved, but they didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. These are just small distinctions you can think through, okay? As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. See, now He points back to the book of Acts, right? So if this is not about salvation, it's about empowerment, right? John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So He remembers that in Acts chapter 1. He remembers it. So if God gave them the same gift, not the gift of salvation, he says they're going to get saved, and this is part of the gospel's work, but on top of that, they're going to receive the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is for what? Empowerment to be witnesses. So when God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to say that that I was to stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God. So then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, some people say from the Calvinist tradition that granted repentance means unless God gives you the repentance, you cannot repent. And so he chooses some to give repentance to and others not to. That is not what it means. The gospel empowers all people to repent. That is God's way of empowering people. So God granted to the Gentiles the ability to repent. How? When the preaching of the gospel comes empowered by the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict the world, the entire world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You hear that gospel being preached. You are now granted the ability to repent. The non-Calvinists like us, we call this prevenient grace, that unless God made the first move, you can never make a move on your own. Plagianism is what we get accused of all the time, but that's the belief that on your own you can seek God. On your own you can save yourself. That's not what we believe. We believe that God initiates, even when we look back to Acts chapter 17 in Mars Hill, God initiates through dreams, visions, impressions upon our heart, uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit, and then specifically in the New Covenant by the preaching of the gospel, He initiates and awakens us by His grace to hear the Word and are given a choice. to. chance to repent they always want to say this is such good news because i didn't do anything to save myself including repent or having faith and they always want to put it in the positive but what about the ones going to hell you then just hold your questions to the end but the ones going to hell you have to say god did not grant that to so now god could have saved the whole world but he didn't so now you have all these contradictions in scripture that god's willing that none would perish right well if he's willing that none would perish and all he has to do is grant them repentance then why doesn't he do it why doesn't he just grant everybody to do it Well, God wants somebody to go to hell just for his own glory. That doesn't make sense. So granting here means that he gives them permission through the gospel. Verse 19, now those who had been scattered by the persecution, they broke out, that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, spreading the word among the only the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So here comes the influx of the Gentile uh, revival and the people coming in from, you know, all these different nations. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. To Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace of what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man. This is talking about. this is talking about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And remember when we hear the term, full of the Holy Spirit, that means he's speaking in other tongues, right? That's what it means in the book of Acts, the Pentecostal handbook. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, looked for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Antioch becomes a significant place in the early church. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch remember this was a term given to us by people who saw we acted so much like Christ so this is where we go from disciples to Christians but you have to be to be a true Christian you have to be a good disciple Does everybody get that? Because that's what makes you live like Christ. Not just saying I'm by religion a Christian, but I live like Christ. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, so now there's prophets. Wow, isn't this awesome? We've only really heard about the apostles, but now there's prophets walking around. And as we've heard about, you know, there's deacons, there's these leaders. Things are going on. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And so you can see Luke, as he's recounting the story, says, hey, it actually happened. You know, he said it then, and then it actually happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each one was as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Uh, Judea, do you see brothers and sisters Adolfo used in this context always of Christians? That's why when we, we see him in Acts chapter 19, I believe they're actually Christians. And uh, here in the Cornelius account, he's not called a brother in that way. Okay, so I believe he would have been saved under the old covenant, but he was not regenerated. He did not know the teachings of Jesus. Okay, this then... This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now notice here, this is really one of the first times this term is used. Elders now. Now it's not just apostles anymore. It's not just the original 12 minus Judas plus Paul. It's not just these guys now. It's prophets. It's deacons. And now we see what? Elders, And you're going to see that become the official title because everybody knows we can't we can't all be the apostles like the first 12. We can't all be them. We can have the gift of the apostle, but we all can't be them. So what are we going to call the guys who are in charge of this stuff that teaches us everybody? Well, we're going to call them elders. They're going to take that tradition from the Jewish people, the time of Moses. He had the elders of the tribes lead Israel. That's what uh, Jethro taught him to do, and God blessed it. Uh, so that's that's how the church is going to eventually be led. By the time Paul's writing letters and organizing the church, it's just basically elders and deacons, and what what goes on with elders and deacons? Elders and deacons are used in the five-fold ministry gifts. See, Agabus, he's a prophet by gift, but what is he in the church? He's probably an elder. You're getting what I'm saying? Uh, you know, uh, they're an evangelist. Philip was an evangelist. You're going to hear that he's actually going to be called an evangelist later on, and he had daughters that prophesied. But what was Philip in the New Testament church? A deacon, and eventually he probably became an elder as the church grew, and the need for that became stronger for more leadership thank you jesus would you please prepare to shut her down two chapters of the book of acts god you are faithful amen god is good he just did that lord we thank you for the word of god may it be a light unto our a lamp, a lamp may it be a light unto our path a lamp unto our feet may your word lead us and guide us may it be the foundation on which we build our lives May we be inspired by the story of Cornelius to see that you are preparing people in this culture, in this city, and even in the world and the nations, God, for us to preach the gospel to. You're giving them dreams and visions. You're awakening them to your word. Send us to them, O Lord. Let us not hold against them their past. Let us not hold against them what they're going through now, but see them as the way you see them. Maybe someone today is getting a dream. And they're a, tra- a transgender person. But God, you're going to send us to go speak the gospel to them. Uh, God, maybe someone today is in a gang and you're going to give them a vision and we're going to go preach. Or someone today in ISIS overseas, as, as we've heard that they've converted from dreams and visions and the missionaries meet up with them. And they talk about they were waiting to hear about this. Uh, Lord, use us to do it. Even just in simple, uh, what we call, holy ghost dinks, Divine appointments on the bus with our families and friends. May we see that you're in the middle of what's going on in people's lives, even among the, the, the unbelievers. You're orchestrating their life, God, so that the gospel can have the greatest opportunity to shine and to speak to their hearts. Send us to go to them in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.